Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good, good. I feel like that's a good start to study um, when there's opposition like that. It's a good thing. I'm really excited to start this with you today. I've been looking forward to this for probably 12 weeks. Um, I think the Old Testament overview was good for us. I think it was helpful for us, maybe even necessary. I might even use the word necessary in our walk with the Lord to be familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, the way the narrative of salvation unfolds in the Old Testament. Um, but I am really excited to dive back into regular exposition. Not, not so much just to get to the New Testament. That's not, not why I'm excited. I'm excited just to get back to regular exposition of the text, to be able to um, just look at the text, uh, see the verses, what do they say, what do they mean, that kind of stuff. That will actually start in earnest next week because this week we need to introduce this study. Um, we need to get kind of a, a general overview of the book of Hebrews before we can move into looking at it very closely. But the first thing that we'll notice right off the bat is that there is a clear connection to our study of Hebrews and our study of the Old Testament overview. In fact, look at Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 and listen to what God says in his word here. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. I love that because it's clear that he had spoken in all these different ways in the past through the prophets, through the priests, through the sacrifices, through the temple, through Moses, through Aaron. All of these many ways he had spoken in the past. All of these things we've looked at uh, for the last 12 weeks. But now, But now he has spoken to us in his sons. All of these things we talked about over the last 12 weeks have been leading us up to this. The prophets, the law, the priests, the sacrifice, the festivals, the judges, the kings, all of it leads up to the coming of the son. I love that he says, but now, but now he has spoken to us in his son. So our foundation of Old Testament overview will be helpful as we move on in this study. So let me give you Uh, Just some brief introduction to the letter. We'll talk first about the date that this letter was written. There's a little bit of debate about this. There's some people that will say that this letter was written before A.D. 70. uh, And some people that will say it was written after A.D. 70. And A.D. 70 is a pretty specific date um, because that's when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And so uh, that's a pretty, pretty defining moment in the life of God's people when the temple was destroyed. And so there's some people that will essentially say this, this letter was written before that and some that will say after. I would definitely fall in the camp that would say this was written before A.D. 70, maybe just before A.D. 70. Because as we see the theme of Hebrews being that Jesus is better, Jesus is better than the old covenant, Jesus is better than the old sacrifice, Jesus is better than the old priest, Jesus is better than the temple, if the author had at his disposal the fact that the temple had already been destroyed, he would have certainly used that in his argument is what I believe. If he could say Jesus is better than the old temple because look at it, it's a rubble at this point, I think he would have taken every opportunity to do that. So I think uh, that probably the book of Hebrews was written at just before AD 70, maybe like 68 or 69 AD um, would have been when, when it was written uh, because I don't think the temple had been destroyed up to that point. So that's a little bit about date. We're talking about middle of the first century. Second thing we'll talk about in introduction is about the authorship of the book of Hebrews. Uh, And there is a whole lot of debate about this. In fact, when you read commentaries, if you read the introduction, man, you will see guys argue intensely for their opinion about who wrote this. Let me just go ahead and cut to the bottom line. You want to know who wrote the book of Hebrews? God wrote the book of Hebrews. 
Um, that is ultimately the answer to any question of authorship when we talk about a biblical book. And we need to be quick to go there. We need to be quick to say that regardless of what human author was involved in the writing of this book, ultimately what we are reading is God's word. Now that's not to say that determining who the human author is is insignificant and unimportant, but it's not of ultimate importance. Ultimately, God wrote the book of Hebrews. And ultimately, only God knows which human was used to write. There are a lot of opinions, a lot of options. Some would say Paul. In fact, a lot of folks say Paul. I actually think that's one of the weakest arguments for authorship is to say that it's Paul. Um, Some people say Barnabas. Some people say Silas. Some people will say Apollos or Luke or Philip or Priscilla or Aquila or Clement of Rome. There's really just no shortage of options. I have one friend who argues pretty convincingly that Matthew wrote Hebrews. Um, So there are lots of options about who wrote it. I would probably say um, that Luther had it right when he argued that Apollos wrote Hebrews. Apollos is this uh, Alexandrian educated Jewish man who is very eloquent and very polished and uh, you will see that Hebrews kind of fits into that realm. Apollos or someone like him probably wrote the letter of Hebrews, but ultimately only God knows who wrote it. And ultimately God himself is the author of Hebrews. As far as the form of this book, it's a little bit interesting um, because it doesn't really fit a certain mold. There are some elements of this book that look like and sound like a letter. They sound like what we've studied in Romans or First and Second Corinthians or Ephesians, where some leader is writing to a specific group of people in a specific place in the world who knows them intimately and the situation they're facing, and he's writing directly to them. So there are parts of Hebrews that make it sound like it's a letter, an epistle. But there are other parts of Hebrews that fit more like a sermon. Uh, They sound more like someone standing in front of a group of people they love and and exhorting them and warning them and encouraging them and laying a theological foundation for all of that. So uh, I would agree with a guy named uh, Tom Schreiner, who's a uh, professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville. He says, Hebrews then is a sermon an exhortation in epistolary form. So basically he says, it's a sermon letter. We don't, we don't want to have to divide it too carefully there. It is a sermon letter. Okay, so that's basically what I'm going to tell you by introduction. It was written probably before AD 70. It was written by God through probably, I think, Apollos, and it is a sermon letter. Now let's get into the heart of it. I want to talk to you about the theological foundation of the book of Hebrews. What is the overall theological theme of the book of Hebrews? I would say it this way. Jesus is better. Jesus is better is the theological foundation of Hebrews. In fact, that's why we use this graphic um, because it says Jesus is greater than. Jesus is greater than. He's greater than anything, right? Jesus is greater than, better than everything, Specifically in this letter, the author is going to say that he is better than the old covenant of Judaism. Specifically in the context to which he is writing, he's going to say Jesus is better than the old covenant of Judaism. Arthur Pink, an old, old theologian, he says this, seven things Jesus is better than in Hebrews. Number one, in Hebrews we are shown that Jesus is better than the prophets, that Jesus is better than the angels, that Jesus is better than Moses, that Jesus is better than Joshua, that Jesus is better than Aaron, that Jesus is better than the whole ritual of Judaism with all of its sacrifices and festivals. 
And also, Jesus is better than all of the Old Testament saints. You'll see that in chapter 11. Probably the part of Hebrews you're most familiar with is chapter 11. By faith, Moses. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Noah. All of these guys. Well, the author of Hebrews is saying all that to say Jesus is better than all of those guys, right? Arthur Pink says, in summary, In the Lord Jesus, Christians have the substance and the reality of which Judaism contained, but the shadow and the figure. So all of this that we've been studying for 12 weeks is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is better than all of those things. And that is the theological theme, the theological foundation of the book of Hebrews, right? Jesus is better than anything. Jesus is better than everything. I want to also talk to you not just about the theological foundation of Hebrews, but about the cultural context of Hebrews. Because once we understand that foundation, we want to understand what is the situation into which the author is speaking these things. Why is he going to this group of people? Why is he writing to this group of people and reminding them Jesus is better? Well, George Guthrie, who's a professor at Union University, a fantastic and brilliant man, wrote a, wrote a great commentary on Hebrews. And at the very beginning of it, he writes this fictional account of a man named Antonius. And Antonius, uh, in his mind's eye, lived in the first century. And I want to read that story. Maybe some of you already read it on Facebook or Twitter this week, but I want to read to you this story of Antonius so that you'll get a little bit of the cultural context into which Hebrews was spoken originally. And I think it's pretty faithful. So this is story time with Pastor Chris now. All right, so, so get comfortable, but not too comfortable, right? When I, when I read this this morning, it took me five minutes and 30 seconds. So that's a short nap, so don't even bother, right? It's not even worth it to try to fall asleep at, at this point, okay? Antonius. Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second-story apartment located in a slum on the slope of Esquiline in Rome. As rain pelted the age-worn wall outside, A plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on the makeshift table. The room had turned dark with the coming of a storm, and Antonius lit a small oil lamp against the gloom. With the light, hungry roaches materialized, scampering to the dark safety of cracks in the wall. In the apartment next door, a baby cried, and the infant's father screamed obscenities at at the infant's mother. An urgent conversation rose and then faded as an unseen pair of business partners walked down the stairs. Somewhere in the muddy street below, A unit of Roman soldiers marched past, driven under sharp orders from its commander. Antonius sat alone, thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as gnats darting to and fro in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment. Each time he turned the other cheek, it received a slap in kind. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom. But since the expulsion of Jews under the emperor Claudius, Christians had continued to be harassed by various degrees by both Jews and pagans. Upon the expulsion, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings, and the seizure of their properties. That was almost 15 years ago now. Antonius had not been part of the Christian church at that time, but had heard about the conflict. In fact, his own grandfather, ruler of the synagogue, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of the Christians. When at 17, Antonius converted to Christianity, the old man almost died. 
declaring Antonius dead in a shouting match that ended in tears and a tattered relationship. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself. And now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. Footsteps in the hall, a scream in the night, meaningless events that nevertheless set Antonius's heart racing. He had been told the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience was different than he expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken, that he would always feel the presence of God. He had been taught that the Lord, the righteous judge, would vindicate his new covenant people. Did not the scriptures speaking about the Messiah say that God had put all things in subjection under his feet? But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief. Some, in their disillusionment, doubted and left the church altogether. Antonius Bardavid remembered the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community, the joy of the festivals and the solemn celebrations of the Jewish calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's community, but genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors, and he missed the members of his family. He watched them from a distance as they walked together to the market by the Tiber River. Some of them would still not speak to him and passed him on the street as they would a Gentile. That was difficult. And today, his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp, black blanket. To make matters worse, he was one of the poorer members of the church. When Antonius became a Christian, he lost his job at the tailor, as a tailor's apprentice in the Jewish quarter. He now spent his days sorting rotting produce, sweeping the floor, swatting flies, and receiving orders from obnoxious Roman slaves shopping for rich mistresses. He stooped so low as to take pieces of rotten fruit home to supplement his meager food supply. Even rich men's slaves fared better than him. Earlier in the week, Gaius, the kitchen slave of an equestrian who lived in the area, tossed him a handful of overripe figs, saying, Here, Christian, change your cannibalistic diet by taking a bit of good fruit. Laughter hung with the gnats in the air. To be poor and a Christian invited double portions of ridicule. Antonius, Antonius had missed the weekly meal and worship for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat to this little house group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, cautioning him concerning his loss of perspective. Yet in recent days, he had begun to snuff such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius's bitterness over his current circumstance was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumor had it that the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonius's curiosity was aroused, and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. Entering the gathering room, he spoke greetings to several friends who also looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and, a, and friendly banter, but dejection hung like a cloud over the room. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was a bit out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved and he, as he stood smiling before the group of about 20 people, his hands shaking slightly from advancing age. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath, explained that he had talked the other leaders into allowing his group to be the first to read the scroll. With a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began to read with vigor. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
I think that does a good job. That little story does a good job of painting the picture of what it would have been like to receive this word originally and what the situation was of the people who received this letter originally. They had lost their families when they trusted in Christ. They had lost their communities when they trusted in Christ. Some had lost their jobs. Others had lost their homes. Some had even lost their freedom. And while it seems that the author of Hebrews says no one has yet died because of their faith, that's just around the corner. We know historically. So the cultural context is that there is persecution and there is trouble and there is discouragement amongst these people. So here we have it. The theological foundation is Jesus is better. The lesson of Hebrews is Jesus is better. The context into which that is spoken is that there's all kinds of trouble. There's all kinds of trouble within this body. And the pastoral application is going to be this. Because Jesus is better, because Jesus is better than everything else, we must not abandon him and turn to other things even when times are difficult. You catch that? He says, Jesus is better. And even though these people are experiencing hard times and great trouble, he says, you must not turn away from Jesus to something else. If Jesus is truly better, then it's absolutely crazy to go back to something that's not as good. Even though that thing may be comfortable, even though that thing may be familiar, it's not as good as Jesus. And in the midst of your pain, to go back to that thing is just absolutely crazy. I'll tell you a story that illustrates this. When we were in Mississippi, um, the kids there, the teenagers like to ride four-wheelers. And one day they got everybody together and we went for a four-wheeler ride. And there was this one boy in the group whose name was Braxton. And he was just a squirrel. I mean, an absolute squirrel. Uh, He never knew what was going on. And his dad had just bought him a really nice brand new four-wheeler. And so we all get together to ride four-wheelers, fully expecting Braxton to ride up on his shiny new red Honda. Well, he doesn't. That day he rides up on this like little kitty uh, 80cc toy four-wheeler. You know what I'm talking about? Like Chinese-made toy four-wheeler. He rides up on it, and the thing doesn't have any brakes. And Braxton pulls up, and we all know that he's got a brand-new four-wheeler sitting at home, and he rides up on this old, tiny piece of junk. And we all say, Braxton, what are you doing? He says, oh, I just like this old one. It's just so much fun to ride. Remember, it doesn't have any brakes. So we go for a ride and we're riding along and Braxton's with us and he's keeping up all right. And then we start to go down a power line trail that is terraced because it's super steep and it's terraced so that it doesn't wash out. You know what I mean by that? It goes down pretty fast, but every once in a while there's a little, a little loop and then it goes down some more. And so everybody goes down and nobody's having any trouble and Braxton takes off. Remember, he doesn't have any brakes. <laughs> and he takes off down this hill and we hear, whoa, whoa. Wow! As he's going off these terraces higher and higher each time. And then, this is funny now, but it was not then. Then we just have a tumble of four-wheeler and limbs and dust as he goes the rest of the way down this hill without his four-wheeler. And he comes up and he holds his arm up and he's got a new elbow. He's got an extra elbow, I should say. Somewhere between his elbow and his wrist is broken clean in two. And just dangling. And the whole time I'm thinking, why? Why were you on that piece of junk when you had the new four-wheeler at home? Why would you put your life in such jeopardy when you've got something better at home? 
And I think that little story helps illustrate the ridiculousness of what the people in Rome, the Christians in Rome, were tempted to do when they're tempted to go back to Judaism. They've got Jesus, and Jesus is better than Judaism. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Jesus is better than the old priest and the old sacrifice. Jesus is better. So why in the world would they want to go back after they've tasted of how good Jesus is, to use the language that the author of Hebrews will use? So that's the pastoral application. The theological foundation is Jesus is better than everything. The cultural context is life is really hard, and they're tempted to want to go back to those old things. And the pastoral application is because Jesus is better, No matter how hard life gets, stick with Jesus. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't turn back to something that is inferior, that cannot truly save you from your sin. So now that we see those three things, the theological foundation, the cultural context, and the pastoral application, let's try to bridge this context. Let's try to bridge it from first century Rome over into our lives today. What do we have in common with the people that this letter was originally written to? So I want you to watch this video because this is modern day. This has happened just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, One of the things that you'll hear in this video uh, happened just in the last few days. Um, This is a video from our friends in Central Asia, and and, uh, our buddy is going to tell you a story about a guy um, he's going to call Andy. That's not necessarily his real name, but he's going to call him Andy. And see if this story sounds a lot like what I've been, the picture I've been painting for you. May the body of Christ be encouraged by the work of his spirit. Another dead man is walking in Central Asia. I first met Andy a few weeks ago. I received his phone number from another company guy in a regional city who had gotten it from a national believing friend. That guy said that Andy had questions about the gospel. When Andy and I sat down at the cafe, we started with the normal small talk getting to know each other, finding out about each other's families, how we had ended up in the city. After about 30 minutes, I decided it was time to open the matter. So I hear you have questions. Questions about what? Questions about who Jesus is. Oh, there's no question about who Jesus is. He's the sacrifice for my sins and the Son of God. And he said all that in the middle of a busy cafe. Now, further conversation made it clear that Andy had believed everything he had heard up until that point, but that he had not heard the whole gospel and didn't really know how to respond. So Andy and I made a plan to begin meeting two or three times a week, opening Bible stories, going from creation to Christ, to help this young guy understand what it truly meant to follow Christ. On or about the fourth or fifth time we met, Andy showed up pretty frustrated. We were supposed to be studying Isaiah 53, and as he often did, he'd been reading at home to get ready. He sat down that day, said he had read it three or four times, but just couldn't understand it. So I assured him that we would go verse by verse until I knew that he understood what the text was saying. When we reached Isaiah 53, verse 10, Andy said he realized that God had chosen to crush Jesus so that he didn't have to crush him for his sin. He said he believed it was true. 
but he didn't really know how to obey it, how to respond. So he talked about the difference between believing and trusting. Imagine you're standing in front of a bridge. If you say, I believe that bridge is strong enough to hold me, but then you turn and go another way, you haven't really trusted it. But if you look at that bridge and you say, I believe that bridge is strong enough to hold me, and then you walk out to that bridge and stand in the middle of it, you have trusted it. That's what it looks like to follow Christ. We don't just believe the gospel is true. We trust it. We stake our lives on it. And I told Andy that night that to follow Christ was to be called to trust him, which inevitably would mean leaving Islam. Andy told me that following, or following Jesus and leaving Islam would cost him a lot. He would be cast out by his family, by his friends. He could possibly have problems at work with his landlord at his house. There would be serious costs involved for him to leave Islam and follow Jesus. I assured Andy that the scripture taught it was normal to count the costs before choosing to follow Christ. And I encouraged him to prayerfully take his time. The cost came to bear in Andy's life sooner than expected. Andy went to work one night that next week. And a co-worker asked him why he wasn't fasting, because it was in the middle of the Ramazan festival. Andy told the co-worker he wasn't fasting because he was no longer a Muslim. He had decided to follow Jesus. The co-worker told his boss, and his boss told him he would give him a couple of days to change his mind, but he would probably be fired for his faith. The next day he was at home with a friend, and the friend asked him why he wasn't fasting. He told the friend that he didn't fast anymore because he wasn't a Muslim anymore. He was a follower of Jesus. That friend happened to be the son of his landlord. The landlord came to the house and told him that if he didn't show up for the prayers that night, he was going to kick him out of his house for his faith. A few days later, at the end of his work shift, Andy's boss came in and told him that he was fired because he had changed what he believed. On his way home from work that last day, he ran into four guys in the neighborhood out in front of his house. He later learned that those four guys had already been inside of his house, trashing his stuff, tearing his house apart. One of the guys standing on the street said, We heard that you have changed what you believe. And when Andy said, it's true, I follow Jesus, one of the guys hit him across the back with a two-by-four. Andy went straight to the ground, and they just proceeded to beat him relentlessly, kicking him and punching him, until they finally ran away. We later found out that Andy's landlord had gone to the mullah, the local director of the mosque, and told him of Andy's faith and that it was actually the mullah that had gone to these neighborhood guys and put them up to trying to scare Andy straight. That day, Andy texted me, told me, told me that we needed to talk. So I called him. He told me a little bit of this over the phone, but we knew that we needed to meet in person to 
to be able to really discuss what was going on. We met at the same cafe that we met at that first time. Andy came limping in, still had a smile on his face, but he was noticeably beaten down. He sat down and very quickly it became apparent that his biggest question was, what have I done wrong? Why did this happen to me? And so we opened the scriptures together and we went through Matthew 10 and John 16 and Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 4. We talked about how it is normal for followers of Christ to suffer for the sake of his name. That that is what Jesus told us to expect. Slowly, Andy realized that being persecuted for his new faith was not only normal, it was a privilege. We also talked about Romans 10 and Acts chapter 2. I wanted to make sure that this new brother was on sure footing as he was standing in this newfound faith. We talked about a heart belief in the resurrection. We talked about repentance of sin. When I asked Andy about when he had confessed Jesus as Lord with his mouth, he smiled and said, I did that right before the guy hit me with a two-by-four in the back. Then he took one more look at Acts chapter 2 with me, and he told me he wants to be baptized. Lord willing, we'll take care of that in a few weeks when I get back home. We've been on a vacation with my family for the last couple weeks. In the meantime, Andy's story goes on. A couple of weeks after all this happened, about three or four days into our family vacation, I got a text from Andy. Andy is a musician. He's also an artist. He likes to do paintings. And after his conversion, he had begun painting pictures depicting the crucifixion of Jesus. Apparently some people that live nearby had seen the pictures and It wasn't enough to trash the pictures they decided to trash his face to. Andy had to return to the country that he was originally from because the injuries were so severe they required reconstructive surgery and he couldn't afford to do it where we live. He had to go to his country where he'd have free medical care. But he's assured me that he'll be back in a few weeks and he still wants to be baptized. We asked y'all almost three years ago to be praying for fast fruit. And God has honored your requests on our behalf. Because of where we live, these new brothers and sisters face a life of challenge and persecution that looks far more like the book of Acts than life in the American church does. But God has a purpose even in that. When you think of people like Andy, I would ask that you pray for them to endure through persecution. Don't ask God to deliver them out of persecution. Because God intends to use this persecution for the advancement of his kingdom among the nations. In the end, Andy lost his job. He lost his house. His landlord kicked him out. He lost his stuff. Those guys trashed it. He got beat up twice. But Andy has told me that he got Jesus. 
and it's worth far more than all that stuff. So, so that's a pretty close parallel to what we're talking about in Hebrews, right? And, and this has just happened in the last month or so. And these are people that we know that are involved in this. And so it seems a little bit closer. Andy facing the real temptation to go back to Islam because of the trouble he's experiencing for following Jesus. I'm so encouraged that at this point he is saying Jesus is better And I want to pray and want us to pray that he will continue to say Jesus is better even when life is hard. But even though though that story brings it a little bit closer to us, it still seems pretty far away, right? It still seems like that story is across the planet. And that story seems to be in a different world. So what about us? What about us? Are there any of us facing that kind of trouble for following Jesus? No, Andy's story is not like ours for the most part. There aren't many of us who are tempted to go back to our old religion. There aren't many of us facing that kind of trouble. So we might think that the book of Hebrews is not applicable to us because we're struggling with different things. Maybe we would even say, we don't have this problem of apostasy. That's really the the technical word for what the danger is in the book of Hebrews, what the danger is for guys like Andy. Apostasy is defined as the abandonment or renunciation of a religious or political belief. And I like that definition a lot because it seems to acknowledge that there's a difference between expressed apostasy and implied apostasy. the, The definition talks about renunciation versus abandonment. And while I don't think there's a big problem of renunciation or expressed apostasy here at First Baptist Church, I think we are in grave danger of implied apostasy, of abandoning the faith. And I'll give you some statistics here at First Baptist Church to evidence that. We did a pretty careful study of about the last eight years of participation in small group Bible study or Sunday school here at First Baptist Church. And we use those statistics because they're individual. It's not just a group. We can tell how many specific individuals have been involved. And during the course of the study, we have had almost a flat line of participation. There have been about 420 people every year for the last eight years involved in small group Bible study or Sunday school here at First Baptist Church. And that is somewhat encouraging, that we're not losing ground in the number of total participants. So volume... To use that language, volume has remained consistent over time. But during that same time, the average attendance in small group Bible study for the year has decreased. And so when you compare the average number of people involved on a Sunday to the total number of people involved overall, the percentage who are here on any given Sunday is decreasing pretty dramatically. In fact, at the beginning of the study, it was almost 90%. So in other words, at the beginning of this study, 90% of the participants were here on any given Sunday. Only 10% of the folks involved were missing on any given Sunday. You know what it was up to date this year? 68%. 68% of the people involved, 68% of the 420 people involved in Sunday school are here today. That means one-third of the participants at First Baptist Church are missing on any given Sunday. That means that I'm going to preach this sermon two more times over the next two weeks, the exact same sermon, in an effort to get everyone to hear it. Not really. (laughs) But you get the point, right? 
You get the point. Only two-thirds of First Baptist Church is gathered here on any given Sunday morning. So what we've got is a difference between volume and frequency. We don't have a volume issue at First Baptist Church. We have a frequency issue at First Baptist Church. The volume has remained steady, but people are being, in, being here less and less often as time goes by. George Guthrie, in the, in the introduction to his commentary on Hebrews, not only tells the story of Antonius in ancient Rome, he tells the story of two couples in modern life. And basically, as he goes through this story, he talks about a couple who was involved in the life of a local church. But their involvement slowly declined over time. He talks about a phrase that I think is so important. He mentions excused absences. And how over time these excused absences for this family multiplied and grew. And all of a sudden they were gone. They just weren't around. People knew where they were for three or four weeks of the month. People, people knew where they were for eight or ten weeks of the year. People knew where they were for 20 or 30 weeks of the year. And then all of a sudden, they were gone. And the reasons why they were gone were totally acceptable, all of us. And what I fear in all of this is that this implied apostasy or this abandonment of the faith, it scares me so much because it's so subtle. It's so quiet. It's so sneaky. In other words, if someone was making a break from this church to go to Judaism, or someone was making a break from this church (coughs) to follow Islam, or if someone was making a break from this church to become a Mormon, man, we would have alarm bells going off all over the place. We would have red flags going up all over the place, and we would be in panic mode. But if someone misses for two weeks of the month to be at a baseball tournament, or at the lake, or at the golf course, or on vacation, there are no red flags. There is no alarm bell. And all of a sudden, when that pattern continues, they are gone more than they're here. And then it gets harder and harder to be involved. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing. And what I'm saying to you is that I don't think you have a a temptation to go to some other religion. I think you have a temptation to abandon the faith altogether. I think we have a temptation to say that Jesus is not better. Jesus is not better than this other thing that I want to do today. In fact, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that I feel like we only see some of you when you don't have a better offer. When you don't have something else going on that's better, you come to church. And I think it's that same kind of context that this book is written into. And so I don't want you to feel like Hebrews is written to ancient Rome. I don't want you to feel like Hebrews is written to modern day Central Asia. I want you to hear clearly that Hebrews is written to First Baptist Church here and now. And that we are facing this same temptation. It's more subtle, and I believe it's more dangerous. And some of you are sitting back and you're already frustrated with me. You're, you're trying to say, what do you mean? You mean you've got to come to church to be a Christian? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you earn your salvation by coming to church. But I'm saying if you love Jesus, if you love Jesus, and if you are following Jesus... You will want to be involved in the life of a local church. Not just once in a while. Not just when there's nothing better going on. But you will sacrifice. That you will make it a priority to be involved in the life of the local church. I think think local church participation is a pretty low bar. A low bar. And maybe the first fruit of what it looks like to follow after Jesus. And then maybe there are others of you that just don't like my tone. You just don't like the tone of this today. It seems very confrontational. It seems, it seems like I'm warning you. It seems like I'm frustrated. I am. And I am. And I am. Because I love you. 
And I think that the tone that I have right now is consistent with the tone of the author of Hebrews. It's consistent with the tone of God himself as he speaks to this church. As he says, do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. It's dangerous for your soul to give yourself more to something else than to Jesus. He's better. He's better than all of those things. And we need to show that with our lives. So here's the application of the day. Number one, Jesus is better. He is better than anything. He is better than everything. He is better than a game. He is better than a vacation. He is better than sleep or brunch. He is better than you fill in the blank. And because he is better, we in this study are going to try to fix our eyes on him. We want to see him as better. He is better. But we want to know that he is better. We want to see him as better. We want to fix our eyes on his greatness, on his glory, on his superiority over every other thing. We want to see him as the all-satisfying treasure of our hearts. In chapter 3, verse 1, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's what we're going to do. We're going to consider Jesus for a long time. On Sunday mornings in Hebrews, we're going to consider Jesus. We're going to think about him. We're going to try to see him clearly. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're going to consider Jesus, and we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus in this study. That's one of the goals, is to see Jesus and to know that he is better than anything else we can see, than anything else we can desire, that he is better. And secondly, because he is better, do not turn from him. Do not turn from him to go to something else, no matter how hard life gets. And maybe in America, no matter how good life gets. Don't turn from Jesus to go to something else. In that application, there's a positive and a negative side of it. Positive and a negative action that we need to take. On the positive side, we need to cling to Jesus. We need to cling to him. And what does that look like? Well, there are two parts of clinging to Jesus. One is my own personal spiritual discipline. If I'm going to see Jesus as better than anything else, then I need to know Jesus. And if I'm going to know Jesus as an individual follower of Jesus, I need to read the Bible regularly on my own i need to pray regularly on my own i need to spend time in worship not when we gather in this room and the band leads us in singing but i need to worship him on my own in other words i need to cling to jesus personally through spiritual disciplines of the christian life i need to cling to jesus on my own as a as a lover as a follower of christ but i don't just need to do that independently personally i need to do that corporately If I'm going to cling to Jesus, I need to be with you guys. You guys help me cling to Jesus. In fact, one of my favorite parts of Sunday morning is a little prayer group that happens over there. And anyone's invited. It doesn't have to be a little group, but it's a little group right now. And there were two guys that we haven't seen in a while in that group because they've had some stuff going on in their families. And they were back today. And man, what a joy it was to see these two brothers that we've missed so much in that moment walk back in. What a joy it was to gather with them once again in prayer. If I'm going to cling to Jesus, I want to cling to Jesus with you guys. 
I want us to cling to Jesus together, to look at Jesus together, to consider Jesus together, to fix our eyes on Jesus together. And if we're going to do that, we've got to be together. More than once in a while, we've got to be together. So, on the positive side, cling to Jesus through personal spiritual discipline and corporate participation. On the negative side, on the negative side of not turning from him is don't walk away from the body. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to examine your life right now. And I want you to ask this question. Are you abandoning the faith? Are you committing some type of implied apostasy? Does your life clearly show that you believe that Jesus is better than anything? We sang that song on purpose today. More than all comfort, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. More than my sorrow, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe that. And maybe we need to add, make my life show that Jesus is better. I'm so saddened, and I've said this already, I'm so saddened when we only see people when they don't have a better offer. I want want to appeal to you. There's no better offer than Jesus. There's no better offer than the gospel. There's no better offer than corporate worship with people you love and follow Jesus with. There's no better offer than that. What could be better? Nothing. Nothing. So there are a number of strong warnings in this letter, in this sermon. And we're going to be faithful to that tone when they come up. And maybe you're not going to like it, but it's good for your heart. Out of love, I want to warn you. Don't turn away from Jesus to something else. Nothing else can save. No one else can save. So cling to Jesus and trust him fully. Let's stand together and pray. God, we want to... We want to see Jesus clearly. We want to consider Jesus. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus. We want to know that Jesus is better than anything. Jesus is better than everything. God, make our hearts believe that and let our lives show that. Through our personal spiritual discipline, grow us in this. Through our corporate participation, grow us in this so that you would be honored by our lives. God, forgive us when we walk the path of slow, subtle apostasy. And God, for those who are on that path already, bring them back. Confront them, convict them, and bring them back to a steady walk with you. Bring them back to faithfulness, commitment to you. God, we know that there are people in this room who who don't know you at all. They've, They've never heard how good Jesus is. They've never trusted, as our brother said, that Jesus can save. Oh God, I pray that today would be the day that that happens. Where they don't just look at the bridge, they don't just consider the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and say, that could hold me. God, I pray that men and women and boys and girls in this room today would walk out onto that bridge, put their whole weight on Christ for salvation, trust completely in him to save them. God, I pray that there would be true faith, true trust in this room today and that you would send grace and mercy down and save men and women and boys and girls in this room. That they would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. God, help the rest of us to follow faithfully. To follow Christ faithfully. In his name we pray. Amen.